Welcome to The Drift, your resource on all things business strategy, entrepreneurship, and leadership. I'm your host, Aloiza, and today's guest is Don Weiss, Chief Marketing Officer at Cycle Bar and Row House. Don is such a powerhouse and has spent her career building innovative brands, having served as a COO and CMO at Amazing Lash Studio, senior marketing executive at the Joint Chiropractic, and was responsible for leading brand strategies at Massage Envy, just to name a few. It is such a pleasure to have you all hear her story. So without further ado, welcome Don. Hello. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. Well, let's go ahead and dive right in. So can you share with us a little background on yourself and what got you started? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. A lot of people ask me how I started in franchising, but I kind of take a few steps back because not a lot of people realize, I think, what my path was. And I think that a lot of people start out leaving school and not knowing their direction. And that was kind of where I was. I was an English degree. I had an English degree. I was an English major. And people were asking me, you know, what I was going to get my certification for teaching. And that was not my path. I just never really occurred to me that that was what I was supposed to do. Um, I came from a family of doctors and other professionals and going to college was just required in my family. Um, and so it was, you know, truth be told, not really something I thought about past college it was just, I was going to do something I enjoyed and that I excelled at and writing in English was that thing. Um, and then I, took a, a job out of school, I actually took an extended internship to um, in the sales department for Fox News at the time in Phoenix and was trying to kind of get a greater understanding of the sales landscape and went a little further into sales with another company, a software company in the tech space, and then went on to another software company that was a developer and was doing sales. And I thought that sales was great and I loved it and it happened to be something that I was fortunately good at and I could maintain a living but I didn't like it sort of up in the air right I was like this is sort of like being a waitress I you know don't know if, how I'm going to pay my bills every month if I'm going to be really successful at it or not tech is always so squirrely right it's like um, I was working for a speech recognition software company and I loved it but I needed brochures we needed sales brochures so I started writing the manuals and the brochures and all really like the, um, the marketing materials to give out and once I started to do that, I was able to marry what I loved about sales with what I really liked about writing, right? I could illustrate to somebody, write the value of the product and the service that we were selling. And so that really just turned into a marketing job, right? One job after the next, um, working for fast track startup businesses, um, and then falling into an opportunity at Massage Envy, um, where I was fortunate enough to be they called me the director of brand continuity, uh, which was really just kind of overseeing the brand um, and just making sure everything was consistent around the brand, which, you know, I don't even know that we knew what that was going to look like. Um, and then it really just continued to grow into marketing more and more um, heavily into marketing and then more so as we continued to grow into lead generation, right, as we got further into these other brands, which is sort of where, where it's become that path that needed led to being a chief marketing officer, right, is that you're driving the strategy. But I was able to kind of not really just have like a linear path, right? A lot of people think that it's just sort of like, here's the path. Um, but doing all the different things in the department, which gave me a better understanding of what needed to be done in order to drive the strategy for a larger growing brand. So sort of an unusual path probably for most. Um, I'd like it to have been cleaner, but I think that I've learned an awful lot more um, that way. So. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's the beauty of it, right? There's beauty in, in the madness, as they like to say. Something that just resonated so nicely with me too is I think your journey has so many synergies with one another and then also hearing how you got started in marketing in the first place, especially in startup environments. The most important thing that we have to focus on is communicating the value proposition, communicating the why, and that's how you sell. Right, sales in my perspective, and I'm sure that you've witnessed yourself, sales is all about just having a, a conversation about something that you're passionate about and why something works. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, translating the passion is super important in a startup environment, right? Especially as you're getting in front of investors, being able to make that pitch and have them understand, number one, why does it why does it matter to your customer base, right? How is everybody going to make money on this, right? Where's where's the, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze, right? Um, and I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of startups really struggle with, right? Is is what is that, you know, we, we come to the table with this pitch, um, sitting across with investors for, you know, most of the brands that I've been part of have ended in, um, you know, an, an exit, right, to an equity firm. And there's always that conversation about, you know, that the numbers aren't always the numbers, right? What's really moving this business, right? What what potential have we not even touched? And I think people get so tied up into what the business is as it currently stands, right, that they they forget that the people that they're selling have to really see what it can become too, right? That this isn't just the only right conversation that we're having. It's what does the future of that brand look like? Um, how much potential is there? What does the consumer care about? What additional segments are there? How do you continue to grow? Um, and I do think that everybody, again, comes to that table at that startup stage, right? Or seeking funding with this expectation that we got it here and we're either going to continue to grow it together, right? With, you know, the VCs or um, selling it off to somebody. But I do think that um, growth is central to that conversation. A lot of people have difficulty illustrating they're passionate you know, about it, but also understand why the consumer is, because it's great that we're passionate, right, when you're sitting at that table. Um, but you have to be able to explain and, and show the path for the future, too, of the brand. Um, so I, I always find that that's challenging, but super exciting stuff, too. Yes, absolutely. And I'd love to dissect your background a little bit more to how you have essentially operated with so many different diverse backgrounds, um, more so specifically geared to leadership qualities. Did you ever experience different types of leadership? If so, what are some of those learnings that you experience in, in carrying to varying different styles? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I'm, I'm, acutely aware that the leader that I believe myself to be comes a lot from the leaders that have come before me and have helped to shape me. Um, I've been really fortunate to have some really great teachers. And when I say that they've been great teachers, some of them haven't been really great leaders, right? Some of them have been. Um, but I think sometimes those things that, you know, we learn along the way are things that we don't want to be just as much as what we want to be. I can tell you that when my first opportunities at Massage Envy, um, the founder there talked all the time about how he just hired smart people smarter than him he was a really sharp guy right I mean he he was sharp but he always was very humble about it and said that his job was really to hire people smarter than him and I, I took that with me and that's very ingrained in in what I am I tell people that my role is really to 
um, sit at the table and to guide the ship. I, I need to make sure that I have all hands on deck. And when I mean all hands, it just means that, you know, if there's a key component to something that we're about to tackle, I need to know that I have somebody on my team who can tackle it or, or that we are resourceful enough to find the answers that we, that we need in order to make that work. Um, so, you know, I don't try to be the smartest person. I try to hire up. I try to hire people who, you know, can, can get the results that, that maybe I can't get alone. Right, no, no good leader is going to get there by themselves. Um, so I'm very team focused. That also comes from um, just a, that level of accountability. I think is super important. I've worked for leaders who, just quite frankly, have lacked accountability. Right, not anybody um, whose whose names are really big in the marquee of businesses. And I think that that also is a testament to, you know, I've worked for some places where maybe they aren't the highlight names, but that also is maybe a reflection of the fact that they haven't been the strongest leaders. Right, and you can see that. You see that in the bottom line of a company. Right, it's it happens from the top down. So. So um, accountability is a really important thing, and I think that I've been, again, fortunate to be part of teams that have come to the table and said, look, she's all in. Like, I don't expect you to work late nights and weekends. If you do, that's helpful. That is not my expectation, nor does anybody lose a job because they don't work the crazy-ass hours that I do. <laughs> um, but, I, but I just... I really enjoy people that enjoy their work, right? So I look for people that are passionate about their work. I have often been, um, I, I had an experience where somebody in a leadership position early in my career used to kind of say that I was really passionate about things that she was not passionate about and that that was okay, but it didn't feel like it was okay. It felt like passionate meant that I was like hyper-focused on something that she just didn't see value in. And I get that, right? But but that was my job. My job was to be in the details. And so I really look for people that are passionate, that are all in, right? Whether it's your 24-7 and you're a grinder or you're just in the details or you just have tunnel vision and this is your focus and that's what you love. I think that passion drives purpose. And a lot of people don't really bring that. And you can't, you just, you can't teach that. You can't teach passion to somebody. You can't teach work ethic. You can lead by example. And there are some people that are just not going to take to that. Um, and so those are the core things that are really important to me as a leader is to just be at the table, to be a team member, to hire people that are smarter than me, and to look for people that are as passionate about what they do as what I bring to the table too. Because I think that that's it's just, it's horrible to be, right, where you're focused on something that's really great and then you're sitting at a table and nobody else is buying it, right? Um, especially because now, more than ever, we spend all of our time in front of these screens and working and trying to connect um, and, and build businesses. And I think that it's inherently difficult to do that unless you have a team that's really bought in to what's important. So I, I think that those are probably key to, to my leadership strategies. And I completely agree. It actually plays so nicely with the principle that I've always operated in. Whereas leaders don't build the ideas, they build an environment to foster and inspire ideas. And that is so incredibly inspirational for how you've actually essentially operated yourself too. And I think that ultimately drives buy-in with the right talent as well for your team. Yeah, and I, I think that that's key, right, is finding the right talent. I think that that's always tough. You don't know. Resumes tell you only so much about somebody, right? And we get so many of them these days. Um, 
you're fortunate to have so many avenues in which you can get some really great talent, but I think it's really sitting down and knowing what drives somebody to do that work. Um, and, and then I think that that brings up a good to, point too, is just having a team that feeds off of one another. You know, and as you scale a team, that gets more and more difficult because not everybody is gonna do really well together, right? I just recently had a conversation with my team, um, you know, with, with a couple of members of my team who just kind of went at it about something that they're both really passionate about, right? And I think that we're fortunate to be in a position where you can get other people on your team to understand, right, why this is important and to work towards a common goal, but it's sort of a resetting of let's take a look and, and work together. I think that when you're challenged um, and there is some conflict, it's healthy. It's it's definitely healthy because it means that the team is comfortable sharing that, which I think a lot of teams hold back. And then you can see that. You can see that in the work that people do, right? If it's held back and it's just process driven and there's no passion behind it and no passion behind it, I think you can definitely see it. So, so I try not to let it discourage me, but I'd like everybody to get along. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely want to tap into your franchise experience now too. You know, the franchise world can be such an exhilarating journey. And I'm curious, first question for you is for those who may be interested in tapping into franchising, what are some thoughts that you would share? Yeah, you know, um, you know, I, I just love franchising because again, it's that it built off of that same premise that somebody smarter than you potentially came up with a really great idea. Like we could maybe do it, but I'm maybe not as process driven in that arena. Like I would love to own a type of business, but maybe that's just not something I know much about. I know a lot about the marketing and I can be taught the other things. So what I love about franchising is it gives somebody an opportunity to literally leave their job tomorrow and start something of their own and create their own wealth and be in control of their own future. Um, you know, we do everything that we can to give our franchisees processes and plans and make sure that they follow a path. Um, but the most successful franchisees will take it, make it their own, follow the path in the process, and again, create um, just greater value in the, in the proposition at the local level, right? And that brand and how it resonates with their local consumer, because that's always a little bit different. Um, so I, I tell people that if they're considering franchising to really go for it, to find what you love that you maybe wouldn't feel as comfortable doing on your own, but also to understand, I, I kind of, I've heard somebody once coin the phrase "freepreneur" that I kind of stole and got credit for on a recent, on another podcast, but I, I didn't create it. Um, but franpreneurs are really franchisees, like entrepreneurs are not risk averse. You can't really be risk averse if you're going to be a successful franchise, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, right? Um, but franchisees tend to be a little bit more risk averse, right? They're, they don't want to take as big a, a risk. They want to take the leap, but they want to know that that net is there to catch them. And I think that that's really the subtle difference between being an entrepreneur and then following a play that somebody else has put into place and then making that business your own. So I tell people that it's, it's like a recipe. You know, you can add a little bit more sugar and a little bit more salt, but you really need to follow that recipe because if you put sugar in place of salt, it's a totally different business, right? It's a totally different recipe. So um, it's great for people who want to own something of their own that, that want that ownership, but really just want to know that there's a, a path and a plan. Um, and I think that that's the, the difference too. And um, there's certainly still risk involved in it, right? Um, but I think that it's, you know, when, when people are shopping for a franchise, we like at Exponential, we have nine brands. And 
each one of them has a very strong sales and marketing team. And we really talk about how truthfully in these membership-based models and these recurring membership models, we're really sales and marketing brands. We're not necessarily fitness brands, right? That's our first core business, that we're a sales and marketing organization. And so when you find that level of support in a franchise, that's key. Right, that somebody's going to be by your side. We have calls ad nauseum. Anything and everything you want to learn, all the support you could possibly have. So that old adage that you're in business for yourself but not by yourself is probably the thing that maybe appeals to me most about franchising for sure. Yes, and you touched on it, but just overall, the level of support that franchising ultimately provides a business owner, especially if the I mean, majority of time we're not all business experts in every single part of the business. Like we're not all sales, operations, marketing, and finance experts at the same time. Um, and that does provide a level of security and comfort and confidence for franchisees to be able to go into that journey. Yeah, absolutely does. I mean, um, it's amazing how just sitting at the table of a growing franchise, I've learned so much on the operations side. And I think that that's challenged me to be a better marketer too, because I understand the operational needs of a business and the struggles that a franchisee has. That being in the trenches with them is exhilarating to me because it makes it something that my husband and I joke, uh, he kept talking one, one time about doing something for marketing. And I said, well, this is what you should do. And he says, what do you know about running a small business? And I said, actually, it's, that's what I do. He says, you run these big brands. And I, I said, no, I like work with hundreds of small business owners every single week, right? That's that's what I do um, and just make it scalable, right? So I, I love that. I love being right on that, you know, ground floor. And truthfully, I'm like, I have the least skin in the game. It's not my money. So it's really up to the franchisees, right? I have to get them to understand the value of what we're providing and to run the play. Um, and they have to, it has to be, it has to be something that they believe in, right? So I like working for that buy-in because I know that without that, we're not going to be successful, right? These big brands are not big brands because everybody knows us at the national level. They've become big brands and household names because people at the local level consume, right? Um, so that's that's really important. Yeah, definitely. You know, thinking of the support and the buy-in that you do have to constantly help drive when it comes to the franchise or franchisee relationship. I mean, I'm sure exponentials definitely as, as all brands and health and malls definitely face their fair share of headwinds in over the last year and we're hearing so many of these now buzzwords like omni-channel digital programming this digital hybrid environment um, and fitness technology all of these are starting to become more used so i'm curious in your perspective how does that play the role in the marketing lead generation overall just level of support and efforts that the franchisors have to place on behalf of their franchisees yeah, and, and when you're asking about what impact that has or just on, on the franchisees and, and like on our getting their buy-in on those things or yeah, I, I think that, you know, it, it is a tremendous impact because a lot of it can be very confusing, right? Marketing is this ever-changing scope. You and I talked about you started out on a slightly different path, right? And you saw opportunity there and you were you, you were found and poached, right? To have a, a better opportunity because people see, right? That there are things that somebody does really well in the marketplace and then we feel like, right, we have to bring them to our brand to make what we do better. There's so 
many different technologies that come into space. Marketing is an ever-changing landscape. I tell people all the time, like my job is not to, um, you know, have all the answers. My my job is to have all the questions. I need to know where to look. I need to know that the data isn't always the data, and that happens in the conversations. You can apply different marketing technologies. You can apply different marketing strategies. But at the end of the day, at the very very core, marketing is just telling people, making sure that you are where the consumer is at all times, that you're as present as you can be, whether you call it omnipresent or whether you're multi-channel or omni-channel or like you said, right, have these hybrid digital or um, consumer strategies that have multiple layered touch points, whether it's, you know, direct mail and it takes them to QR code. Now I'm at a landing page and connected television. It's this whole ecosystem, but it just doesn't change the fact that what it's really doing is as we get more and more and more sophisticated with all of these other marketing touch points, the truth is that they all come back down to the basics. They're your traditional, digital, and then they're layered, right? And it's really just full circle, right? We just come full circle. All it's doing is we're not just doing these several different things, we're doing them in tandem, right? Um, and that's a, a, at least where we are right now. I think as that landscape changes, it's constant educating the franchise owners, right? What do they need to know and what do they not need to pay attention to? I'll give you an example of that. TikTok, huge, big, important thing um, for a lot of advertisers, right? Um, you know, for our demographic, it's not where they're monetizing, and that's really important. And that's especially like where you and I were talking a little bit more about as these brands grow and investors get right involved and are interested and they're um, interested in looking at these brands and they consumer potential, the long-term potential, I think we have to look at, you know, do you have people that are making the right decisions for the brand and not just the right decisions for like their career, right? It'd be great for me to have brands all over TikTok and to be like world renowned, right? And to have everybody know about Cycle Bar. Is it driving butts into the seats? Are people going to buy? Is it increasing my membership and my revenue? And if it's not, if it's not revenue generating, I used to check stock tickers to see, right? How are these, um, you know, how are these platforms performing? When you couldn't monetize Instagram, my franchisees at Amazing Last Year, when we first got to um, Instagram and introduced that as an advertising platform, it was like, if I can't monetize it, right, the way that I need to in order to physically drive people to your door, that's not where I want to focus in. It's not where I'm going to spend your money. And when that happened and we could monetize it better, that changed the story, right? That changed the path. It doesn't mean that that isn't a viable opportunity. It just may not be right now. And so I think the right strategy is to just take a look at right what comes into the ecosystem, let other people adapt it. It'd be great to be an early adapter if it makes sense and to definitely test things that may be completely out of the box so that you can be ahead of the competition, absolutely. But you gotta really know where your consumer is, right? And so all of those touch points only bring us that much closer to the consumer, but you have to know, right? It's it's like sitting at like the dealing table, right? I'm gonna like double up on this, right? I'm gonna move my money to this pile here. This card has like a better shot. Um, of getting me closer to the winning table. So I think that, you know, it's, it's a lot of it's just a crapshoot, quite frankly, right? But you have to have an, a strategy and an understanding as to why you're doing this. So I don't do anything unless I know why. And if I can defend it um, to myself and to my superiors and, and the money that I'm entrusted, I have to be a good steward of the money that we're given on behalf of the franchisees to spend for ads. That's one thing because until all those things exist, I can't talk to a franchise owner and sit across the table from somebody and say, you should do this, right? That's their livelihood. That's their money that they're investing. Um, and again, as we 
end up into those eventual situations as you know the cap table grows right you have to think too about what the investors are going to be looking for right did you are there missteps along the way yeah absolutely people try things all the time like massage and me we threw a lot of stuff up against the wall to see if it stick and it didn't stick right some of it didn't stick um but you know and you grow and a few years later it does right something that you you're willing to try so i always wish i had a crystal ball <laughs> I need a crystal ball. That would be like everything. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah, I think something that's incredibly refreshing about what you touched on, and especially I mean, my experience, not definitely not as as vast as yours in the franchise space, but the communicating the why value and the value proposition to the franchisees is always going to be the most important step in the relationship, especially as it relates to just the changing dynamics of what the marketing strategies are. The reality it is and why I find your response to be so refreshing is the best way to have a aligned why and aligned purpose is always putting the consumers at the forefront. And by stating and showing franchisees that everything that you're doing, all the strategies that you're putting into place, ultimately will just drive the brand closer and closer to the consumer. That ultimately just drives a more powerful relationship. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, the inclination is to kind of get in front of all these new exciting technologies or things that you can do to drive your business. And again, um, franchisees have to run that play, right? They have to believe in it. Um, and, and that's important. We have like a, um, marketing fund committee that helps to guide decisions that we make at each of these brands and oftentimes the conversation comes up that they think we should do something and i think that we should do the same thing or i think we should do something different and we have that conversation in partnership but the reality is is that it doesn't really matter what anybody thinks it's what is the data telling me and what's the consumer going to buy at the end of the day there were a lot of decisions that I would have liked to see go down a little differently as we were building Massage Envy. There was like a core essential decision in the early stages that I thought could could have gone very differently. It, it played out in the end a lot later, a lot longer down the path after I left, just fine. But I thought we could have gotten there a lot sooner and it always frustrated me. But the truth is, is that it was like, what does the consumer want? And really truthfully at that time, the business decision that was made was what we wanted. It wasn't it was what everybody wanted internally and what the franchisees wanted, not what the consumer wanted. What the consumer wanted, we didn't yet provide. And it wasn't until I think later on um, that we learned that. It was one of the, those foundational things too that really kind of shaped what I've seen in research, right? You can shape that research to tell you anything that you need it to tell you, right? Depends on what you're looking for, right? Well, what does the data say? Well, what do you want it to say, right? But one of the focus groups that we did um, early on, I remember the founder sat down and we looked at the results and he, we paid a lot of money for that. And it was worthwhile research, but he was like, we learned like, it, and he said, this is great. And I said, okay, so what do you think? And he says, there's no surprises here. And I said, you're right. Like we knew all this stuff. So now what? And I felt because I was younger and greener that that was a waste of our money. He, he knew this stuff. He was right. We all knew this stuff. But what it did was codify for us that we were on the right path. And it was actually worthwhile because we knew that what we did and what we believed was best wasn't necessarily what the consumer yet told us. This is the first time we asked the consumer. So there's value in that too, right? And, and, um, but that was a, a really um, 
that was a solid learning moment for me. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, we spent all this money. Well, we knew this, right? And he was like, but that's good, right? Because it means that we we're on the right path, but we didn't know. I mean, and oftentimes when you're building a business, you don't know. You just don't know what the consumer wants. You don't really have the means to even always ask the consumer the right questions, right? We have surveys and that promoter scores and reviews and listening tools, right? But consumer sentiment, why do people do things, right? Why are they utilizing the way that they are? Why are they willing to spend more money? Not just because you ask them, but, but what are the things that are gonna help them to consume more of your products so that you increase right, your value to them? So telling stuff, but yeah, you learn as you go. Absolutely, and again, I think there's always such beauty behind the process of getting this research as well, because when you're actually conducting these surveys and the, the, the research, ultimately you're putting your brand back at the forefront of these consumers' minds because they're talking and thinking about you again. So there's also power in that. Now, I'd love to touch on um, your role as a female executive. Uh, you've just had such incredible roles in the past and your journey is incredibly aspirational. So thinking about ultimately women executives, women in the boardroom, we're seeing massive reports and just data that's showing that women ultimately only hold perhaps 16.9-17% of board seats globally. And then when we're comparing the countries, U.S. is actually only ranked number 22 of the highest percentage of board seats held by women. So I'd love to dive into your perspectives on this. Can you talk to us about your path into the boardroom and ultimately what are the things that have gotten the way and things that you have found to be the most beneficial? Yeah, so it's a great question. It's funny that you pointed that key point out. I saw it during the pandemic. I was reading a lot of stuff and I was trying to figure out how the world was going to come out of this. And that is that same um, data point that I saw. And I was astonished, right, at how small our voice is um, in organizations that, quite frankly, many of them are being consumed by women, right? I mean, majority of household decisions are still made by the female in a home. Um, by the mother in a family. Um, females consume a larger portion of in-studio fitness, which is the realm that I've been in. Um, I think that there are just so many things that astonish me that when I've been in these businesses, primarily, I've lived in that 35 to 54 year old sort of sweet spot um, in the membership model for women, average household income X, right? College, professional, college plus. And so it's always interesting to me because again, they, they seldom have a voice. I was invited to be um, part of a uh, board for a company that, that was specifically targeting women. It was pretty much all women consumers. And the entire organization was male, male-driven, male perspective. And it's fine. There's value in it, but they're not like what we just said, right? In the early stages, you don't have all that consumer data. So you're really looking for feedback from the consumer and you're, you're get going by a hunch. So to have people that don't really understand that consumer's mindset. Um, early on, I realized too that, you know, demographics are different than psychographics. What drives somebody, right? What is their lifestyle? What are their, um, you know, desires, right, around consuming this type of service or product? What are they doing? What's the practical application of that? You don't really know that until you're sort of in that mindset. So um, I talk to consumers, I talk to franchisees all the time that don't have children. And a lot of them, when I talk to them about, you know, we have mostly married 
you know, um, consumers in a lot of these brands, and I talk to them about children, and they have a high propensity of children in their home, and they're like, so you just, you know, you have helium tanks at events and balloons that bring children, because if the children come, the parents come, and then you're filling up that balloon, you're having that conversation. Seems like tiny little things, but stuff that people don't even think about, like how do I outreach to the PTA to raise money and do fundraisers in my organization, like in that organization. People don't know because they're not in that. So taking a step back from that and saying, listen, from the consumer perspective, women's voices need to be heard, right, if you're going to market to consumers that are females. But I think even more so when you're outside of that consumer space, right, even outside of that consumer space, where's the value of having, you know, another perspective in, in that room? And I think that I have not, you know, when you talk about my path, I have not really, um, seen it sort of as like female lone female though i'm usually the lone female have been the lone female in many a boardroom um and i kind of sit and kind of watch it go back and forth a bit on how people stir around different conversations and definitely female perspectives tend to be a little bit different some of it too is because they they have not been included in that conversation and i read a lot of um women's books that, you know, and women in business that have such great insights. And I don't think that women really support enough of really what needs to happen for you to get there. But there's always this, how does a woman do this? Or how does a woman do that? And so I kind of take a step back. And I think if you really want to make change for women on that path, start with the boys. I'm a mother of sons. So to them, there is no difference between me and their father sitting in a boardroom, right? We have the same value. We have the same voice. We have the same authority because that's what they know. They see me in this environment, that's normal for them. If you don't ingrain men in understanding, right, the value of women at the table and not necessarily labeling it that you need to just open up the boardroom to fill it with more women because, simply because, somehow we're owed it for decades of not being. Like, that's not my mindset as feminist as I'd like to sound for an opportunity like this. That's not my mindset. My mindset is do really great work and it doesn't matter what sex you are, there's an opportunity for you at the table. When we start thinking of about glass ceilings, I think that that's when you hit it, right? When you accept that there is one, that is when you hit it. And I try to get women to understand that I have worked with over the years that that your your voice is valuable, potentially even more so for this type of business, right? Or even for businesses maybe where you aren't the natural consumer, because it it's, again, it's a different perspective, right? It's a different mind shift. So it's interesting to me that those barriers. Um, you know, still exist. I see that there's so many strides being made now, but they're, they're slow, right? They're just so slow. And I think that there's definitely been movement as women stayed home. And I, I got to tell you that one of the things that really struck me was how many women I knew that were, had great jobs, that were working from home and trying to homeschool kids and sat down and said, even though I've been doing this for like 15, 20 years, if I have to make a choice, I think I'm going to stay at home and homeschool these kids because who knew how long we were going to be there. And so I saw some women take sort of a backseat from business and I was really concerned about the effects of the pandemic and what that would mean for women coming out of that space and, and maybe wanting to be more at home um, but hopefully that's that's not a long-term thing I think most of us were really excited to stop homeschooling um, and to just you know help the kids with homework instead <laughs> I'm a horrible school teacher so I was glad to be done with that my poor children it was terrible <laughs> <laughs> trying to go back to our roots and try to figure out geometry again what all of that means and now you, you touched on such great insights and 
Um, that's actually the first time that I've heard you're right when it comes to trying to make a change as far as actually promoting women into the boardroom, women in leadership positions, it ultimately does come down to education and letting the young kids, our future generation realize that it isn't something that we're trying to catch up to. It's something that should just be ingrained from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, we focus on, um, you know, making change. And I think that we do, I would love, right, for women like you and I to meet regularly and to make changes, um, you know, in companies all across the, the, the world. But the truth is, is that it does start really small. It's how we speak and recognize ourselves, what support we give other women. There is no woman that I've ever worked with, no guy that I've ever worked with either, that I'm not willing to mentor. Right, that I'm not willing to spend some time with if they've been on my team to, to talk to them and to help them, to help them through. I just talked to a girl the other day who said I, she was just in tears and I said, what's going on? She's like, I have to fire somebody. She's never had to fire somebody, right? She's like, I just felt terrible about it. And it was just that moment of connection where it was like, hey, you know what? I don't, there's not like a, there's, there's plenty of resources that tell you how to do something, right? But I think that that one-to-one -one connection and being able to build those communities and mentor and build those relationships and support one another helps us to get there a lot faster than just saying, hey, we, we need to be there. You need to include us, right? Show me. Show me why. What do you understand about business? What voice can you lend to this conversation that moves that needle, right? That helps that company grow. And I think that there's plenty that um, goes overlooked, but but obviously that shouldn't. And I think that it's truly each of our own responsibilities to step up and to say, you know what, I have something to include, right? I have something that you probably haven't considered. It doesn't matter if I'm male or female, but then it, making those inroads, I think, are incremental. Most definitely. Well, future facing, any exciting things coming up that we can expect from you and your brands? No, I just, <laughs> we are, we definitely have exciting things. Um, I know that our uh, exponential family is uh, just building and further uh, growing our on-demand platform, which has been really great um, all across our brands so that we can um, be where everybody consumes fitness, whether it's at home, whether it's in the studio. Um, but of course, our primary focus is getting people back into the studio um, and more consistently now that people have less concerns, more of Vaccinations. Um, our studios have done an incredible job just building community that supports people wanting to come back to fitness and be in control of their health and well-being. So I'm excited for what this next year has to bring, especially um, as we have been reopened and, and I look to a better new year where we can all kind of have health resolutions and be back in studios and not wearing masks. So I feel like that's, you know, it kind of comes and goes in some areas we still are in some areas we're not but i think for us the biggest thing is just going to be on being more connected to our consumers i think you'll see more of that and again being in the more places where they consume fitness so i'm excited that's incredibly exciting well final question for you if you could give advice to a young woman that is desiring to be a future entrepreneur what would you share with them gosh i would share with them um Probably the best advice I can give is to find women and even men who will teach you about that industry that you're interested in. Find the thing that you're passionate about. Sometimes, like, truthfully, when I look back, it's like I, I maybe always wanted to be a marketer. There was, like, some things that I was drawing as a kid, and my, my cousin said, look, you're an artist, and you're a fashion designer. And I was like, no, that's cell copy. I was selling things in a brochure, right? I, I might have always been a marketer, but... 
but it was finding somebody who could draw that out of you, right? And finding that thing. I think I might have found my path a little bit sooner had somebody been able to kind of clue in and recognize that. So I would say don't be afraid to get to know all businesses. Who knows? I mean, there are maybe race car drivers watching this, right? Um, little girl presidents are possible now, right? A lot has changed in the last few years. And so I would say that if there's any woman out there who says, you know what, I'm not sure that I can, or boy, you've been really fortunate. Yeah, I have been fortunate, but I've also always hoped and expected and worked towards the things that I wanted and found people who can help me. It really is an awful lot of who you know, not so much what you know. And I don't mean that in a way at, that there's connections are super important, but what I mean is it's who you know. It's it's who you know around you that has leadership skills that can teach you that. That person that walks in, that commands that room, that's not mistaken, right? That's intentional. That person's maybe worked some time to do that. People have presence, people speak well, people are kind, right? People connect with others. Those are all leadership skills that you can amass from any age, from any age. And so I, I would say that, you know, seeking that out in others and also connecting with women were so big on, I know, for so many years, it was like, who's going to get married and who's going to have a baby and who's going to do this? And there was like a small group of women where we were like, we just want to network and connect each other to businesses and help build our businesses. And I'm still in touch with those women today and they're all successful. And there's maybe a, only a small portion of them. And I would just love to see that grow. I would love to see other women nurture those relationships. And you know what, if there isn't an organization, create one. If there isn't an opportunity, make one, right? Be that opportunity for somebody else because that's how we get there. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you, Don, for your time. And as mentioned, make sure to check out Cycle Bar and Row House for premium indoor cycling, row basing fitness regimes. Looking to hear more about what's happening in the health, wellness, and sports industry? Subscribe to this podcast and we'll catch you next time on The Drift.